I hope that they will learn how to lean back and their spiritual hearts. This is for people in the church and um, for people outside the church, for young people, for children, for old people. Everyone learns what it is to yield themselves to the spiritual heart mm. and um, live their life from there and see the difference it makes to living it from there. Their self-protective and possessive, confused egos. Hello, I'm Tom Bushlack, and welcome to Episode 3 of Contemplate This, Conversations on Contemplation and Compassion. This interview is with the Reverend Dr. Tilden Edwards, an Episcopalian priest and founding member, former executive director, and now senior fellow of the Shalem Institute for Spiritual Formation. Shalem is a Hebrew word meaning whole or complete, or as Tilden says later in the podcast, moving toward wholeness. The Bible tells us to worship God with a lev shalem, a whole heart. According to their website, quote, Shalem is grounded in Christian contemplative spirituality, yet draws on the wisdom of many religious traditions, end quote. This, I think, captures an essential component of the contemplative dimension of the Christian tradition. That is, these practices show us how to live fully committed as followers of Jesus Christ, while remaining open to the universal wisdom expressed and found in the world's rich history of spiritual traditions. Through Tilden's leadership, Shalem was one of the first institutes designed to train ministers and church leaders for spiritual direction, particularly outside of the context of monasteries where the practice had always continued since the earliest foundations of monastic life in the early church. In that regard, Tilden is a particularly important figure for the rebirth of contemplative spirituality in a distinctively ecumenical context, that is, among Christians of all denominations and backgrounds. It's also worth highlighting that his background includes congregation-based social justice work in Washington, D.C. In fact, he tells the story about leading others down 16th Street in his cassock during the March on Washington in 1963. And his introduction to contemplation was further ignited through intensive introductions to contemplation, both within an Episcopalian Benedictine monastery and time spent studying with a Tibetan Buddhist Lama. You'll notice in this podcast that I let Tilden talk for quite a while as he weaves together a beautifully integrated narrative of his life, beginning from his early childhood through his education and eventual awakening to the contemplative dimension of his own vocation and his contribution to that. Although it doesn't come through as clearly without the video, it was really clear on his facial expressions and his long pauses that Tilden was thinking deeply about what he really wants to share out of his experience. For me, it was like sitting at the feet of a great master and soaking up the wisdom of a lifetime enriched by deep spiritual commitment, compassion, 
social justice work and service to the many people he encountered in his ministry and especially at the Shalem Institute. He's very soft-spoken at times, and I've done my best to equalize and clean up the audio. I ask that listeners will regard any imperfections in the audio as a sign of my amateur editing skills rather than any defect on the part of Tilden. If you've been to our website at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash contemplate dash this, you'll notice some improvements since our last podcast with Cynthia Berjolt. The podcast is now professionally hosted by the Podiant community, and I'm grateful for their support. Contemplate This is now available in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and the Podiant app. And finally, we've just wrapped up our NPR member drive here in St. Louis. And in that same spirit, I'd also like to ask you what Contemplate This is worth to you and to ask for your contributions as you are able and willing to support this free media. Any free will donations help me offset the cost of creating and hosting and the other free media that I make available on my website. You can donate now by going to thomasjbushlack.com forward slash donate. That's thomasjbushlack.com forward slash donate or there's a donate button right on the Contemplate This main page. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoy this interview with the Reverend Dr. Tilden Edwards. Tell us a little bit about your background, and we'll go from there. Okay, you want me to go back to the beginning? Sure, let's go start at the very beginning. That's fun. Well, I was um, born in Austin, Texas during the Depression. My father was um, in law school there, and my mother was an undergraduate, though they knew each other before uh, from the place uh, from their, where their families lived in another part of East Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, first seven years of my life were spent uh, moving around different towns in East Texas. My father uh, trying to find a job after law school and and those depression days, that was very difficult. Uh, Then World War II came along and um, my father joined the Coast Guard and uh, that process led us to New York City where I spent um, three years um, with um, uh, life in Manhattan and uh, Greenwich Village, where I went to Catholic school for three years. Uh, both sides of my family were were Roman Catholic, though there were Protestant relatives too. But sort of the the German and Croatian Catholic sides um, manifested greater power than anything else. And um, those early years were very uh, powerful. Uh, that was a pre-Vatican II Catholic Church, and the school with the Sisters of Charity. Uh, you were in a whole way of life. It wasn't just a school. Mm-hmm. We had, you know, 
daily catechism, we had prayer, we had novenas every Monday, we were together in, on Sunday at the nine o'clock children's mass, and all my friends were, were Catholic, and the rest of the world was a kind of unknown mystery. The time of and, the Catholic uh, ghetto. What? It was that time of the Catholic ghetto. Yes, it was. Yeah. And a very intensive tradition where you you really felt that this was holding all the truth you needed and just uh, followed along and you didn't question. Mm-hmm. Of course, um, my, my parents also during that time were divorced. My father went overseas. Uh, was a port officer in, in Scotland uh, and <clears throat> fell in love with a Scottish Jewish woman and uh, divorced my mother uh, by proxy and converted to Judaism. <clears throat> my two half-brothers and half-sister were raised in uh, Jewish tradition. So they all basically um, left it in terms of any activity now. And my father's long since deceased, along with my mother. Uh, But those were very formative years. I did not resist or feel bad about um, the kind of prayer that I learned there, the memorization, the all the things that probably if I didn't leave when I was 10 years old um, uh, would uh, probably have begun to revolt against in a few years, but I wasn't there long enough. I was there for the romantic time where I just absorbed it all. And um, when I was 10 years old, uh, we moved to um, Portland, Oregon for a year. My mother was pursuing um, college, and we were living with relatives of her father. After a year there, we moved to California, lived with my grandparents uh, in San Jose for junior high school, middle school. And uh, then we moved yet again for the ninth time to uh, Los Angeles, and I Waiting from Hollywood High School, which was chosen by my mother because it was a good school academically. It still had a little of the flavor of uh, the Hollywood you think about with some movie stars, children, and so forth. But those were basically all um, happy years. And spiritually, even though my mother had left the church. My father become, became Jewish. Um, my mother became a Congregationalist mm-hmm. uh, in Los Angeles, a big church. And I stayed Catholic right through high school. And I was now president of the Newman Club, as I recall, in high school. And um, But I was unsupported in that. My friends there were basically um, either not actively religious or they were Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so I drifted away once I went to college at Stanford. <clears throat> and it was um, a time of great searching for me. Those years, I, I um, was in Naval ROTC. This was during the Korean War. And uh, I took a course in, in uh, religious ethics and uh, decided I was a pacifist, mm. which was not something that sat very well with being a naval ROTC. <laughs> I would guess not. <laughs> and, well, I was actually amazed when I pulled out, um, told the commanding officer I, I had I needed to leave. Um, I was just not called to be there. He was amazingly sympathetic and said he might have done the same thing if he was my age. I was really in shock, but it was a wonderful sense of support and leaving. Mm. Maybe more vulnerable to the draft, but I still had a college deferment. And in any case, those were just very searching years uh, with uh, all kinds of other searchers and visited churches and Quaker meeting and uh, read materials. I, I just um, didn't know what was true or real for me. My last year, middle of my last year, something came over me, which I, I was totally unexpected. I just was given internally a sense that something major was going to happen ahead and change me. I had no idea whatsoever what that would be. But I remember it vividly because I know I had done nothing to invite that. I wasn't at that point searching for anything. I was going to graduate school in cultural anthropology, which I had majored in at Stanford. and was set to go off to Harvard for their cultural anthropology program. Mm. But during that summer, before I got to, uh, to Harvard, I was in American Friend Service Committee uh, International Student Seminar and work camp in Japan. And I was Quaker sponsored and I was just really ready. Um, that what was mentioned, what was given me in that experience, that contentless experience in the middle of that senior year was taking hold because I just looking at a sunset on the ship that I it took 10 days to get there to Japan. I, I just went over the line and said, you know, you, you need to choose. You're free to choose. And, you know, you either, you trust that God is or you decide that God isn't. And I just made a decision that, uh, that's, believe that God is, hmm. even though they had a special experience yet at that point. Hmm. So I went to, uh, to Harvard then and uh, ensconced myself in the department and at the same time 
very first term I audited a course from the theologian Paul Tillich. Oh, wow. Um, on art, science, and religion. Huh. And uh, that intellectually sort of turned me around and showed that there was really no way of escaping God. <laughs> he defined God as, you know, your ultimate concern. Mm-hmm. So everybody has a God. <laughs> Whatever is your ultimate concern, you give yourself the altar uh, to that concern, um, whether that's your own ego or whether that's some other form of ultimate concern, uh, that's God. So that kind of disarmed me in terms of feeling I had a choice. Hmm. It's going to be how big the God is going to be, hmm. not whether God was. The other experience that time was with a friend from high school who was in the divinity school at Harvard. And he um, took me during Thanksgiving vacation to his adopted parents' home in um, upstate New York, where his father was a philosophy professor. He had a very bad childhood and had this tremendous experience with this professor when he was in college. Um, and uh, I, I discovered in talking to him and the way the family related to each other, um, they were very definitely Christian. Mm-hmm. And um, I heard words like grace and unconditional love. And I realized I'd never really heard those words before in a personal way. I've seen them in actions. They just lived them out together. And it just drew me in um, their witness, so to speak, without trying. They were just being themselves. I, I began to see that's, that world was larger and truer and bigger than the world I knew. So I joined them um, uh, in a long-term relationship, and Bill Becker, that was the student's name, was my roommate when I shifted to divinity school first year, uh, middle of that first year. My uh, anthropology advisor uh, at Harvard just could not understand what I was doing. (laughs) I can't imagine. But, um, I was just committed to do that. So next three years, um, there I was at uh, our divinity school trying to do my best to uh, let my intellect blossom and uh, learn real theology and depth as best I could. And I also, um, you know, participated in prayers, became a member of the First Congregational Church there, and got accepted uh, as um, a licensed preacher uh, within that tradition. That's, that church later became part of the United Church of Christ, but 
Mm-hmm. That time, that was before the merger, and it was just New England Congregationalists. Um, and I spent a summer working in a little uh, congregational church in rural New Hampshire, very near to Hanover, which is where Dartmouth College is. Mm-hmm. And the, the uh, rector of the Episcopal Church there invited me to go on a retreat with him to uh, an Episcopal Monastery in uh, West Park, New York, Holy Cross Monastery. Mm-hmm. That's where Matthew Wright is, right? Exactly, right. Yeah. All world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the time when that monastery was really in full bloom with uh, many, many members coming in and uh, it brought me back to Catholic feelings that <laughs> I realized I had until they sort of came alive again in those few days <laughs> and uh, the chanting of the psalms and plain song chanting and the silence and solitude and the, the prayers and um, uh, being op- knocked on the door, my room door every day with some declaration of praise of God and I, I began to see this there was something that I was missing in my congregation tradition, I, I just felt what you could call a, a mystical power. Uh, and it sort of came over me and a real experience there where this everything came together with a sense of, um, of light when I was out walking, a sense of, of just everything being good and together and uh, it, it just was a kind of confirmation that something real was here, and I wanted to cultivate that. I was moved by some uh, Episcopal students that were at the Divinity School that uh, led me to m- move into that tradition. I really considered myself Catholic again, but in this case it was Anglican Catholic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I just like the whole kind of way the liturgy presented a mystery that was deeper than any of the words could convey, uh, and I could just be part of that community that just lived into that together. Mm-hmm. So that that um, that brought me to. Um, I left the divinity school into the Episcopal Seminary, which was just a few blocks away from Harvard Divinity School. And it filled in some holes that Harvard missed for me. Um, everybody had an assigned seat in chapel. <laughs> <laughs> and I just love that. See, you know, I have a place here. I really belong. Harvard was much more impersonal than that. The students came from all over the place and I was in one of the dormitories but uh, there wasn't much life together or any expectation of a life together. Mm. 
suddenly I was in a community of people that um, really belong to each other and to a tradition and to a future way of life as priests and uh, that just was a wonderful year of, of um, finding home so to speak in a community sense mm-hmm. so when I left I came into the church in Washington D.C. Where I, I had a choice actually there when I was just leaving seminary. One was a very good traditional downtown parish, and the other was a place that had just basically been emptied of its congregation because it was an integrating neighborhood. Keep in mind that's 1962. Mm-hmm. And um, those were still strong segregationist, segregated days in Washington, D.C. And they had just hired the year before that church a a kind of wild man from New York City who, (laughs) who was totally dedicated to integration and to living into a church that's open to whatever was really needed and called for. Mm. Uh, and that's the one I chose with a salary of $3,500 a year <laughs> and, um, and a room in, in the rectory next door. Thank uh, God I was single. <laughs> but that, um, that began five years of that was worth probably 20 years of experience. I can imagine. I was put in charge of all kinds of projects that, like a summer school where we had 200 neighborhood poor um, African-American kids from elementary school through high school. We had a full-time program for them. And I was put in charge, as ignorant as I was. <laughs> I could give you endless stories of of those days and how much I learned about the the largeness of human life and and how people respond to things, how they care for each other. uh, But the sky was the limit with the rector of that church. We could do anything. I was in charge of education there. That was the one stable place that you could have predictability. Everything else was um, just sort of incredible liturgical changes that I actually partly had brought back from the uh, liturgical reform movement pilgrimage to um, Europe mm. uh, from a uh, Catholic parish in the left bank of. Um, Paris, uh, Paris of Saint-Severin, which was, again, this was just, just before the Vatican, Second Vatican Council was coming into being. But they had already brought things into the Eucharist, like uh, exchange mm-hmm. peace, you know, mm-hmm. peace, and a big 
um, basket uh, the entrance way to put in donations for the poor, food and razor blades or whatever you had to to give that were brought up in the operatory procession to be dedicated to uh, the poor of the community. And, and it, it was an evolving, uh, unpredictable um, mystery of newness week by week in those five years. That, that led to uh, more focus on the incredible changes that were going on in the society at that time. The civil rights movement was at its height. Martin Luther King's great um, Have a Dream, I Have a Dream speech was something that um, that parish I was in, St. Stephen of the Incarnation, uh, we had a procession for two miles down 16th Street. Um, all those in the congregation who wanted to participate. And so were you, were you present at that march and speech? I was, I was wow. the head of it. Oh wow. <laughs> in, in Catholic, walking down the middle of, mm. of 16th Street, which was deserted. Everyone was terrified what might happen that day in the city. And so people were either, um, going to the march or they were staying inside and um, hearing what might happen. Yeah, wow. It was a, it was a very powerful moment, but um, there was even an African priest that was with us who said this is not his fight. He's, he's you know, he's not in this country. And the last minute he was, he said, no, this is my, this is my cause. I'm going to join you, be part of it. There are all those kind of surprises that and showing somehow the living spirit at work. Mm-hmm. In any case, um, I was asked to head up two groups that get me out of the parish after that. One was an urban training program for seminarians from five seminaries in the area, three of them Roman Catholic, one Episcopalian, one Methodist. That was to help seminarians uh, deal with the incredible social changes going on. We had field work for them, riding in police cars and ambulances and all kinds of locations in the city to get in touch with a world they didn't know well. Mm-hmm. Um, also, then the larger organization, Metropolitan Medical Training Center, which was a kind of regional um, center like the Urban Training Center at that time in Chicago, which uh, helped churches deal with the revolution that was going on in society mm-hmm. in terms of understanding civil rights, racial relations. Uh, and also the peace movement that was beginning at that time because the Vietnam War was on. Right. Um, and it, I, I felt like I was in pioneer territory there. I was just left on my own to start this organization. <laughs> Sponsors from 12 denominations, Roman Catholic to Unitarian. 
uh, and we put together programs for clergy and we help congregations deal with conflicts and um, something was missing at that time. I would, I had really adopted a lot of things, the behavioral, um, social science, science world in terms of organizational development, uh, dealing with conflicts and so forth, along with theology and prayer. And I went on retreats, especially to Catholic uh, monasteries, because those mm-hmm. were available to me in that area. Mm-hmm. And something still was missing. Uh, there's something inside that, um, that uh, led me to a kind of eclectic weekend that was uh, full of these contemplative practices, if you will, mm. of different traditions. And I was just struck by them, like, uh, this is touching on something that I don't even have a name for. And I had a three-month sabbatical coming up and um, decided that I wanted to go to some Christian center that would connect with what I could then begin to call a contemplative tradition. And And, uh, a Christian uh, monastic said that if you really want to go deep, uh, we don't have a careful lineage of, of practice in terms of really paying attention to deeper stages of the journey. Um, we have more of a re- reading tradition uh, mm-hmm. and, and we have our way of life and so forth supports uh, contemplative um, understanding. But if you really want to get into some deep practices, why don't you go to Berkeley <laughs> and to uh, join a Tibetan Lama there for the summer who is for the first time offering something of Tibetan practices mm-hmm. for people who are not Buddhists. I did that, and I, I went very, very vulnerable, very uh, open, and I read scripture every day to sort of keep a kind of Christian connection as mm-hmm. I through this incredible range of practices. As you probably know, in Buddhist tradition, Tibetan Buddhist tradition is the one that's the most... Um, It has the hugest number of possible practices that you you combine all the practices of all traditions in the world, you would still probably have more. Yeah, yeah. It was very humbling. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was very profligate and offering us an introduction to just endless practices that he never did again. He really, he saw he had given too much, but I was so glad he did. Mm-hmm. Gave me a sense of uh, how shallow my consciousness was, and how 
how much deeper there there was in my own consciousness of realizing what in contemporary tradition we would call unitive awareness. Mm-hmm. And I went to an eight-day Ignatian retreat, Jesuit retreat, right after that, and I began reading Christian contemplative heroes, saints, mission, mm-hmm. and and I was just amazed. Like the first time I understood, I thought what the world they were talking about mm-hmm. because what I what had happened to my own consciousness in that two months with that almost ten hours a day of practices and and walks. Uh, I, I began to see it fall apart that these words of John Rose book, John of the Cross, or whoever it was in the tradition, what they were talking about, what was behind those words in terms of awareness. And that led me the next um, the next uh, year to begin a group, uh, really what became a new division of that ecumenical training center I was still head of. Mm-hmm. I dealt with contemplative practice. I put together a spring retreat and then a 7.30 a.m. weekly, nine months. Group. I didn't know if anyone would show up, and it was an incredible group of people. It was limited to 20. I let in somebody else. It was a wonderful person. I'm so glad I did. And every week we would, we would have some. They were all Christian. They were all people in uh, different traditions. There were Catholic religious. There were seminarians. There were clergy. There were lay people. Each week, I would introduce a different practice, practice it during the week, come back and do some sharing about it. Christian practices, there were Buddhist practices, there were times where everyone could have a chance to reflect with somebody else um, about what's going on with them and Eventually, after that year, people wanted to keep going, and we did. We started a new group, and they decided they needed something they could really talk with one-on-one in an intensive way. Spiritual direction was virtually non-existent at that time outside of Catholic religious communities. Mm-hmm. A little bit for, uh, for parish priests uh, heard of and most Protestant traditions. So um, we started a program for spiritual directors to the cultivation of enrichment, if you will, people who met the historical criterion for a spiritual director, which is that people come to you to deal with their spiritual life spontaneously. Mm-hmm. And we can to confirm that it's a call to be with others in that one-on-one way or 
small group way, we gave an option for that. And we continued with all kinds of groups. Began to call the Slam Institute after discernment with a group of us who were leading for a name, and we were being sponsored still by uh, all those denominations uh, that were behind that medical training center. Those um, um, included a Jewish. Group that said we needed a word, a name that could connect for Jews as well as Christians. Mm. So we chose that name, Shalem, because it reflected the Greek, the Hebrew word behind the Greek word. <laughs> Find the English word that you get in Matthew where he talks about being perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Mm. But perfect really there doesn't mean perfect as we know it colloquially. It means moving toward your own true end, your own fullness, moving toward the fullness of, of, of the truth and of your personhood and God. Mm. So we took on that name and uh, had a dedication. Let's start, and I had no idea what would happen, but we did find um, uh, some little miracles that kept showing up that seemed an affirmation that we were meant to be around. Mm -hmm. I getting a grant from an organization. <laughs> The foundation that we were their last grant after a hundred years of giving grants. Mm. The person who came to visit had one day workshop we had and I didn't, that he really understood what we were doing. <laughs> and, and the next week we got word that he'd given us, you know, $50,000 to help support our beginning and We were off and, and running and somehow kept getting more and more people coming and then suddenly people were seeing this was filling a hole for them, mm -hmm. their life, and what they felt was missing in the church for them and in their backgrounds. So uh, we attracted two other people on the program teaching staff that ended up being part of a Troika, along with me, the three of us, for 20-some-odd years, um, were together. The psychiatrist, uh, Jerry May, who was Rollo May's half-brother, um, who wrote one of the classic works on psychology and spirituality that really held up you know, the spiritual heart of the human journey and the psychological accompaniment of it so that it gave priority to the to the spiritual dimension of human being. The other was Sister Rosemary Doherty, who was a school sister in Notre Dame that was just a treasure, a, a gem. And unfortunately, Jerry died a few years ago and, and uh, 
rosemary is in uh, is uh, quite old and has Parkinson's disease now, so I'm the one person left with Troika. But we have other staff that have come on board and right. uh, decided eventually we had to offer something for people who are leading groups because contemplative groups were so much was going on that was good and we couldn't deal with you know thousands of people that way so we needed to train other leaders Mm -hmm. we developed a special long-term program for them to um, accompany the spiritual practice program and we began offering other extension programs for various purposes so that's that I've been shaped, so to speak, within that community of people. We grew together over the years. We challenged each other. We questioned what we were doing. We we laughed a lot together because we felt humor was really important to break the spell of looking too self-important or heavy. And, mm-hmm. That Lama was such a wonderful example of that. That summer I was with him, he simply um, he simply had a way of dealing with everybody present in um, a way that was needed. Uh, modeled what a spiritual leader was, the contemplative leader at their their most evolved, so to speak, partly help that I mean these were almost all psychologists, some very famous ones. They were they were all people in the helping profession, sixty of us that summer with them. Mm-hmm. And they could have you know, they weren't naive and yet he knew things about them that there was no way he could have known without having been in their minds. <laughs> mm-hmm. But he would never admit that. He was very <laughs> casual about it. But, you know, one person, he would give a mop and tell them to mop the floor because they needed some physical uh, touchness that way. Of someone else, he'd give a mantra to uh, chant. Someone else he um, would laugh at um, because they were too heavy and he, they needed to get lighter. Uh, he, he would be very kind, but at the same time, capable of being with a person as they needed him to be with them at that moment. And that that's I've never seen anyone model so well what it is to be a a contemplative elder, so to speak. Uh, and really um, provide what that tradition had empowered him to do. Mm-hmm. And so we were, in effect, kind of orphans in Christian tradition in that way, without a careful lineage of really noticing and offering. I mean, we had certainly charismatic leaders who were gifted to do that, but in a way we were really, um, I guess, pioneering um, what orphans do to learn the best they can from whoever they can. Mm-hmm opposed to being inheritors of some particular oral tradition that a person had handed on to them. So um, that's um, still happening, and I'm still involved 
to some extent um, in leading seminars and um, and continuing to let God evolve um, my own understanding and reality. So that's a long, long description of, <laughs> of where I've come from. Mm-hmm. But you've covered all the, the major and important pieces that have come along the way. And I'm a couple of things that stand out to me that you might have further thoughts on is um, what I think a lot of people who have found themselves drawn into a contemplative path articulate very similar to what you said, which is just this awakening of a, of a nameless longing that you don't know where it comes from and you don't know where it's going. Um, but you kind of feel like saying yes, <laughs> but out of a radical freedom, not out of a, you know, a compulsion. Uh, and that that then starts to take some shape. So that, that desire thread that runs through your story stood out to me. And then the other thread that ran through it was um, the importance of community for going deeper into the contemplative practice and experience. Um, we, I think, often have this image of the solitary monk or contemplative. And often contemplative silence is a, is a, can be done in solitude, um, but it also has to be learned in a community and from elders, as you talked about. So those are two things. I don't have a, a specific question there, but it strikes me that those are two parts of your own narrative, as you told it, that, that stood out to me. Yes, uh, community, I, I really sense is, is important. Of course, you can have community that keeps you from going deeper. Right. Or you can have community that encourages that and models that. Um, so it's it's one has to be discerning about community. I mm-hmm. think really uh, be able to find some people who are open to um, the fullness of possibility that's that will be given them. So I'm very convinced that it's a matter of grace and not works in terms yeah. of of um, anything really transformative um, you can put yourself in the way of that in your own practice and and the community and be available more and more by letting there be less and less in the way of your touching the depth of the moment's call mm-hmm. and love mm-hmm. um, uh, Um, but but that's uh, erratically possible, I think, in every community, even every parish that's not totally closed off to going deeper. The spirit is more powerful than our resistance. <laughs> our resistance can delay a lot of good things. Yeah, yeah. I, I was, I wanted to ask a little bit more about your friendship with Gerald May. Um, and you mentioned a book before. Were you referring to Addiction and Grace or a different book? 
Uh, it's before that. It was, okay. It was um, psycho. I think it's called um, psychology and spirituality. Okay. Um, that was the kind of the classic, his classic inclusive sort of thinking about the relation of spirituality and psychology in a way that shifted what so much of the writing was before him. Mm. That really made spirituality a kind of accompaniment, a kind of functional expedient accompaniment to psychological health. Yeah. And he kind of reversed that and (laughs) talked about psychology, well, really not even necessarily being a health, but... um, the, the spiritual path was irrelevant to your mental health in a sense that someone who was um, uh, psycholo- psychologically not in great shape uh, still could um, be vulnerable to the grace of God at hand that shaped their sense of reality and self. Mm. So he was he was um, very resistant to seeing that you needed psychological health in order to be um, spiritually vulnerable and um, touched by God. Well, and it strikes me that many people who struggle—I mean, it's his his. I'm not familiar with that more foundational book, but his book on addiction and grace has been an important book for me personally. And uh, it strikes me that that's often the window into deeper psychological or, uh, excuse me, deeper spiritual health and growth is something that might present more as a psychological struggle, whether it's addiction or some kind of mental illness or anxiety and depression. And I think a lot of people in our culture can relate to that. Uh, but um, that can be a, a doorway to an awakening of something that we long for. And uh, was that kind of his uh, whole approach to the integration of psychology and spiritual practice? Well, he was motivated first, I think, by his work in an addiction center in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. where it, it dawned on him that the only people who were really getting through and over their addiction were people who had some kind of a religious experience. Mm. Uh, And that made him rethink what was important. And uh, he he really began to offer a sense of what? God's independence (laughs) in dealing with people. That um, what can be what will transform you and get you through your addictions and so forth um, finally was grounded in your openness to the grace of God that is showing itself at a given time and really giving yourself to that. Yeah. Um, and obviously that was um, very helpful to a lot of people because that book you mentioned was, I think, his most, his best seller, you know, mm-hmm. nine books. Uh, 
uh, it's struck a theme that is really important. And I, I was, I've sort of bowed to him in terms of my understanding of psychology's relationship, to, even though I've had, you know, a lot of therapy in the psychological world, quite familiar with, you know, what's yeah. available and what it can do and not do. But to be connected with the, um, with the spiritual grounding is, is just so important. And so many people that have come to swing programs that were, that are psychologists or therapists of some kind, counselors, coming because they really wanted to ground their counseling, their therapy in a spiritual hearted way. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to sort of your personal relationship with Gerald and possibly with uh, Sister Rosemary and, and how important that was for the work that you did with Shalane? Well, um, I can still remember Jerry coming to my office when he was still in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, but moving down to work in prison in Baltimore, the psychiatrist and uh, mediating person, the Lutheran pastor that I knew, that said it would be good for him to come meet me. and. Jerry remembers in that time all my questioning of him about uh, really where he was virtually. I guess I mean I didn't. That was before he had written any of his books, and um, and we, I really saw something of enormous potential in him and enormous vulnerable openness to to um, going deeper spiritually and we became spiritual directors for one another for 20 years mm. and we met monthly gave an hour to each other um, and that was at least on my side you know tremendously valuable stabilizing grounding for my spiritual life He's a very, very unique, different person, uh, very independent-minded, uh, which is why he could pioneer in his thinking, I think, a lot. Uh, he um, was skeptical of a lot of stuff that would, I think, would use the word contemplative, but not necessarily know what they we're talking about, <laughs> yeah. and, and yet he would give a psychology and spirituality day every year, that which would have a huge crowd that would always come because he would always get some original thinking to that arena. And psychology belongs to everybody, you, whether you study it or not. You're involved in your own psychological reality. <laughs> And people were, in all those decades, really rediscovering a kind of spirituality that was 
that was um, not a doctrinal affair in its grounding, but an, an experiential awareness affair that belongs to everybody. And he just was one of those people at the top of the wave that was rising um, throughout the country. And uh, we, he, he also had a tremendous sense of humor. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, Rosemary could match it sometimes. We, we would have, you know, we would have staff parties in our office um, and it, um, it's amazing things uh, would, uh, would happen that, that I, I won't go into details but it, it, <laughs> it was, it was um, like no one was exempt from being the butt of a joke so to mm-hmm. speak and um, we would dress up in costumes for parties, and um, it was uh, that the sky was the limit in terms of what would be said and done. And um, that there was a book on the first 20 years of Slam's life, which went this out in you know, some places, and that was that was also. Um, very important to us. It wasn't just that it, it was so natural for Jerry and the rest of us here together, but but you think about it, humor explodes idolatry. Uh, anything you're attached to uh, is uh, something that um, if it's laughed at and leaves you lighter in terms of its hold on you, it, it, at the same time, it it frees you for something that survives the joke <laughs> that mm-hmm. that remains serious and real and and important. We ended up, you know, joining what's now a huge wave of contemplative um, awakening uh, throughout the world which we never would have dreamed of at the beginning. Uh, there's a sense that um, this was something much more subjective and, and uh, narrow and small scale as opposed to something that really belonged to everyone and was in fact to us, I think, the very foundation for such as self-understanding and um, and and action, and wanting to share Jesus' consciousness in Christian tradition, wanting to let that overflow into the sacrificial life of caring for the world and all its messiness and accepting and forgiving people at the same time, resisting and um, uh, encouraging whatever revolutions were called for, Mm -hmm. uh, politically and socially. Um, 
So, um, uh, anyway, Jerry and Rosemary were, um, Rosemary and I went together to South Africa um, just before um, apartheid was ended and Mandela was just coming in the next year as president. It hadn't happened yet. We were there just months before that. We were asked to come um, lead a spiritual um, direction program, a 10-day 10 10-day 10 spiritual direction program, among other things we did there. And those 10 days um, um, were just an, an, an incredible experience because there were 90 people who were in the program we all lived most of us lived together in a girls home during the girls college during the summer and uh um the the people who were there were 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 as they call it south africa colored which were mixed you know white and black um black and white people from different denominations who at that time that was a unique experience being together across racial lines and and in a very intimate personal way and living together I'll never forget the Eucharist that we had together toward the end where we were all gathered and when we got to the time for confession, a white person got up and confessed their complicity in apartheid in their life and were asking forgiveness from the black people who were there. Hmm. It's very moving because others began to stand up and say the same thing and it began be a kind of moment of vulnerable uh, both confession and, and forgiveness together. Wow. When we got to the consecration, I, I was the celebrant for that. Um, and we got to the consecration and I read the, the wine was in a wooden chalice. Mm-hmm. And I had a, uh, the white alb I was wearing with a stole. And when I held the chalice up during the consecration, uh, the chalice began to leak. Oh my goodness. And this red wine began to stain my, um, what I was wearing, you know, my, my alb and it was so moving because it was, it just immediately had that sense that this was the sacrificial meal in which mutual forgiveness, acceptance, um, caring, love would show itself that this was, uh, the communion that was real. So that was an incredible ending together and Rosemary and I, um, were together after that, um, doing other things, but nothing I think in my whole life was quite so filled with communal meaning as 
as that um, that moment together. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you talk about <clears throat> uh, perfect imagery for the way in which communion dissolves boundaries, both within the community that was gathered there racially breaking boundaries, but then the physical boundaries even of the chalice sort of dissolving. What a powerful image, but reality. If you think of communion, you know, as being really the heart of contemplative awareness, Mm -hmm. it all connects. Mm -hmm. This is an external version of that interior um, height of grace and the contemplative um, life where you're realizing the communion that's already there. Personally, I like the word communion better than union. Uh, mm-hmm. Use that too, you know, realizing the union that's already there. But communion uh, helps um, save the paradox mm-hmm. that, you know, we are one and yet we are two. <laughs> can't say one without um, distorting the truth. You have to say both yeah. at the same time. We're one and we're many. Um, God is one. God is triune. God is inclusive. Um, God is a communal wholeness, as I would praise it. Mm. Um, and and so life itself is this shared reality of all creation and the whole human family and the whole earth family. And that's why it's so important for our time, I think, where um, that, that sense of inclusiveness that contemplative awareness gives you, where you're interwoven with everyone and everything is a tremendously important antidote to the kind of social divisions and uh, uh, conflicts that we're, we're suffering in the world today and where power is seen in such an exclusive way that mm-hmm. uh, someone has to win and someone has to lose. Uh, and it has to be something deeper than the mind can get a hold of that's got to come from that deepest place in us, the spiritual heart, as I call it, and even have a on Slam's website and on a six-week online uh, course on what it is to live from the spiritual heart as opposed to living primarily from the narrow, from the mind and the ego segregated from the spiritual heart. Um, and that that uh, whatever practice assists that connection with realizing that inclusiveness of the spirit that shows itself when your grace to be really open. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I want to pull a little bit on that line. You said whatever practice. Um, just to get really practical for a second, what what is your sort of daily practice look like at this point? And, and I think for many people it evolves and and changes. But what 
Is there something that you sort of commit to on a daily level that keeps you grounded in that openness to grace? Um, yes. It's evolved over time, but it's, it's, um, uh, something has always been there. Or, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, reminding myself of, what's important. Um, when I wake up, I, I often, uh, borrow the phrase of, of a homeless African American and, uh, who's, I think, dying of AIDS. And, uh, I think that was his, um, diagnosis. It's in a, um, in a place called St. Joseph's, uh, it's plain Joseph's house, Joseph's house for um, people dying of AIDS, often homeless people. And um, this man said every morning, he, when he, as soon as he's awake, he says, thank you, God, for waking me up. Mm. And I, there's something just true me to that phrase. <laughs> I I don't always remember that when I first went, but it's like some sense of gratitude that uh, not only I'm, am I offered another day of life, but I'm meant to have another day of life and to let it be purposeful in some way serving the, the love that God is and, um, there's always a potential inside of myself. So, in some way, when I awake, whether it's that phrase or something else, um, sometimes I remember one of our other staff, they do, uh, when they just wake up and put their hand over their heart. Mm. A reminder that, you know, it's their heart and God's heart is what they're waking up to. Um, I do that sometimes. In any case, um, before breakfast, um, I always have my main separate time of prayer. Always uh, in my little um, altar space, my uh, little prayer space. Uh, uh, that's where I'm sitting in front of an icon called the Sinai Christ. The earliest extant icons that still exist from the early church and, and hangs in monastery in the Sinai Desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's been powerful for me. And I, in teaching practices, I will include often something to do with, with icons and learning how to pray with an icon in a way that uh, you're letting it know you rather than you're trying to grasp for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yielding to its its reality inside of, of me. Mm-hmm. So that's always greeting me in my uh, table where it stands and I'm sitting on a prayer bench in front of it. I always include um, 
scripture. Uh, almost always it's something from the um, from the common lectionary because that gives me a sense of of um, praying with scripture that others are praying with at the same time, that larger sense of community. It's just not, my, not just my private mm-hmm. biblical reading and uh, Lexio Divina moving toward what strikes me as line or some phrase or word that uh, I'm meant to remember and live with that day. I also do what you could call contemplative intercession mm-hmm. in that time where I I, um, I join God's prayer, so to speak, for other people. It's like God in me praying with God beyond me or what I don't know a particular person needs or wants. Sometimes I will name what I want <laughs> for them. But I realize that finally it's just joining the mystery of God's care for them. You know, affirming that, reinforcing it, but letting it increase my care for that person, for that situation, that group, people, whoever it is. There's also always some receptive prayer time where I lean back into my spiritual heart, that special faculty in us that is marked by givenness to God who is inside me as well as beyond. Uh, and and just receptively let myself listen there. Sometimes I will use a word uh, to remind myself to come back to the presence. Uh, uh, that's always a very crucial time for me because Reminds me that this immediate moment, that larger presence is in my presence, is in my heart, and when I give myself to that, I let myself go behind my conceptual mind thinking, behind my ego's functional and self-protective and confused ways. To that other place inside, that placeless place, that's where I'm most at home. That, that's where I'm most free. That's where compassion shows itself. That's where God shows up in a way that it's larger than my self-image. It's, it's letting God live in me and through me and to use a controversial phrase even in its purest most grace moments where God is living as me mm-hmm. delighting in what I delight in 
caring about what I care, where, where the communion is so intimate that it's no longer by calculating ego-controlled actions. In any case, that's, that kind of defines my separate time along with the time in the evening before going to bed for a kind of daily examine of how much since God has showed up and how I responded during the day and uh, some uh, gratitude time Thanksgiving and uh, some opening my love to God which always seems to be consistent uh, request <laughs> God that says love me <laughs> Jesus that says love me let that be the ground because out of that will come whatever that's the set aside times of the day and if I'm with other in a group I might be doing something with clear with them also like that Mm-hmm. But during the rest of the day, there's that sense of trying to be present um, in the larger presence. Jerry May used to say when he uh, gets up in the morning, uh, one of his prayers is to tell God to remind him of God's self, God's being, because um, he's not going to remember. <laughs> Wow, we need a lot of we we need a lot of reminders. <laughs> um, during the day, I mean, for probably forty years, I practiced the Jesus prayer. Um, and it's just there in me, um, but I otherwise just I mean I've been there so long that I I do have those moments of reminding myself that. As um, I think it's uh, Rumi, one of the Sufi poets, you know, talks about the words. Um, there are two of us here um, washing the dishes or cooking the food or whatever it is. Um, that sense that there is always this paradox of being. One and, one and two, separate and together, yielding and grasping, um, all that goes into um, the recognition of the mystery of a paradox that can't be resolved. Mm-hmm. The isness of God and of yourself. And sometimes it's pure communion and other times you're really feeling separate and um, having to remind myself, especially when I'm at a heavy ego place, um, worried about myself or um, to calculating, just to come back to that open presence and let happen what's called for and trust, trust, trust. Make a trust, the last word to me, mm-hmm. my faith. Um, trust and you don't know what, what I don't know what, because God is so beyond me. Um, 
and also lately it coming, you know, to a feeling during the day of the great personal intimacy of God, which I used to think was a little more primitive than a kind of sophisticated sense of a cosmic transcendent nature um, of God. Uh, uh, but now I have a much more sense of that personal um, intimacy that God just gives us the power to to have that kind of a personal intimacy without destroying the um, transcendent cosmic mm-hmm. of Christ and of God. Um, and, 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 well, I've gone on too much about that. <laughs> well, I know you have to go soon. Um, maybe a last question for you would be, what is your hope for the future of contemplation or contemplative Christian tradition? Well, my hope is uh, for God's hope to be realized. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that is in detail, but there's some fragments um, that I can mention. Um, I hope that they will learn how to lean back in their spiritual hearts. This is for people in the church and um, for people outside the church, for young people, for children, for old people. Everyone learns what it is to yield themselves to the spiritual heart Mm. and um, live their life from there and see the difference it makes to living it from there. Their self-protective and possessive confused egos, which are not enemies to me, but um, they're gifts of God, but uh, they need to be vessels of a larger presence and not their own separate presence. Um, And I hope they will find community with other people who will support and encourage that, that larger sense of presence and, and, and let it overflow into, into the world, both directly in terms of how they witness to that presence for others and so that it's good news as well as in how they're willing to take the actions that um, help care for the world that's given to them and care for the earth that we're part of. Um, so um, for the church I hope you know that what one of the people who you know who was at um, at that snowmass gathering we had together in snowmass Colorado um, that um, 
they will find some elders that will help them move deeper in the tradition. Um, and that the priests can be trained and ministers and be given opportunities to go deeper themselves so they can become those kind of elders. Um, yes, was Stuart Higginbottom in that snow mass gathering whose parish has been so responsive to learning what it is to be contentedly grounded and let that be the very center of their life together and of their own personal self-understanding and identity. Mm -hmm. And that's revolutionary to be able to do that. There's so many ways that we resist that. Now, confused egoism, wanting to be protected, and so you have all those practices that um, really help you to let go of those things that um, resist that truer, deeper, freer, compassionate self and God. Um, uh, I, I just, you know, I just, life is messy, as we've been <laughs> And we're not going to be perfect, and but we're part of a movement in terms of contemplative understanding and practice that I think brings a, a crucial, fundamental, essential depth dimension to understanding ourselves and one another and, and caring for the life we have here on earth mm. and having the hope that no matter what happens um, the last word is the word of goodness that God is and at depth we are also in the image of God Well, I can't think of a better thought to yield our own <laughs> interview on. Thank you so much for your time and the the thought. Uh, people watching or people listening won't be able to see uh, the expressions on your face of of how deeply you're thinking and lighting up at different moments. But I appreciate the the heart that you've brought into this as well. Well. <clears throat> Thank you, Tom. And I, I should mention one thing that you've taught me. Mm. <laughs> I don't think I ever let you know. No. Um, that was in your reflection on the march in St. Louis. Oh. In relation to the, uh, the policeman who killed that African American mm -hmm. in his car and was acquitted at uh, trial. And you're saying you had two emotions related to that. One was anger and one was uh, sadness. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? I do, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that has uh, stuck with me. You said they came from two different places inside of you. Mm -hmm. and the anger was the one that gave energy for really acting, being capable of being, having the courage and the 
gumption to take what action was needed to allow justice to live. And the sadness was a kind of more inclusive feeling of seeing how all of this um, is so um, given and has to be seen for what it is and and accepted and everybody is involved. The anger is exclusive work and justice in the situation, the sadness is the recognizing the human conditions mm. and what it's capable of on the negative side and the sadness that connects us all together. You know, we're all sinners. Mm. <laughs> we're all confused. We're all willful instead of, as Jerry May would say, willing for mm. the deep reality that is in God. Uh, and I, I thank you for that because it's it's um, I think valuable. You said they were both important. Uh, they both yeah. are needed to connect with each other and correct each other, so to speak. Uh, and uh, I mentioned that to some others, and mm. so I just want to thank you for that insight. Wow. Well, thank you for. Thank you for marrying that back. Uh, that's certainly, I think it's that paradox is at the heart of a lot of my own work is how to be fully engaged in the brokenness of our world with a, with a contemplative heart. Yeah, the reality of the first. Yeah. Yeah. The reality of the second and trusting it has the deepest power. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been very rich and uh, much to ponder. And I hope our paths will cross again someday. Well, I certainly hope they will also, Tom, and we'll stay in touch. That sounds good. Thank you. Okay. Bye, Tom. Thanks. Bye. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. And just a quick reminder that you can follow Contemplate This on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, the Podiant Podcasting app. And I'm grateful for any donations you can give to support this media, again, at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash donate. I'm deeply grateful for any financial support that you can give, and I also appreciate your help in spreading the word about Contemplate This by sharing it by word of mouth or your favorite social media outlets. Until next time, may you be well and may you be happy, and may your contemplative practice awaken you to the infinite compassion that lies within.